We've been studying the book of James for the last month or month and a half in a series that we're calling Gospel on the Ground, and we're really going to get to that today. This will be a combination of, of the amazing truth of the gospel, the good news of God's love, and really, as James will do throughout this letter to these churches, now do it. Now here's what it looks like in your life outside of the church. And so... Um, why don't we start by reading the first little bit of this. If you're familiar with James at all, if you've been around a sermon series in the book of James or studied it yourself, you know that we're, we're approaching the dynamite section of this, of this book where James is going to talk about faith and works and how they are related and if they can exist apart from one another. We're not going to get there today, but the theme of faith is really what all of this next chapter is going to be about. And so we're going to talk about the faith that we have in God and the way that we practically see that played out in our life. You say you have faith. Here's what it looks like. So read along with me in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Do not they blaspheme by the name by which you are called. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. You, you heard a word come up. You got an illustration as we were reading. You're tracking along. You get a picture, as James will often give us, of what it looks like to have partiality in the execution of the gospel. And so we're going to talk about that illustration that is shared, but we're not going to get there as quickly as we often do when reading this passage. Because often this is directly applied, again, to the way that we treat each other. Because the illustration is all about that. But we cannot glaze over the very first verse that we read because it is the nucleus of this whole message. It is verse 1 that James is using as reason to share the illustration that we're going to study today. So I read again verse 1 to really set up the theme as to why partiality is so dangerous he says again, brethren, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. This is something that James is going to talk about in regards to the way that we trust and believe in God. Don't hold faith in Jesus with partiality. And, and it's this verse that causes us to actually look backwards again before we look forward. So you come to church after a month and a half and you say, finally, we're in chapter two, not so fast. We're going to talk about chapter one just for a second. It's worth considering where this motivation from James' letter is, is, is coming from. This is not disconnected. James wrote to this church. The church is scattered abroad. We study this now with our own context of trial, difficulty, 
unforeseen circumstances happening in their church. And he says, when that happens, when you get scattered, when trials come, trust God. Trust God with joy. Trust God in a desire to have God's wisdom or strategy for how to get through it. And trust God that allows you to overcome the temptation to trust other things. And so we often read the Bible with the chapter breaks as page breaks or theme breaks. This is the same theme. This is all about faith and trust in God. And so consider what we're being asked to trust in God as we thought about all of this for the last six weeks. I'll let F.B. Meyer give us a very concise summary when we think about what it means that we're holding faith. It's like we're clinging to our trust in Jesus. Here's what F.B. Meyer says to recap everything we've been studying. He says, there are three urgent requirements for all of us. Wisdom to act and speak wisely in the hour of trial. Have joy. Because God's wisdom will give you the strategy to see his whole plan and why whatever trial you're going through is actually something that is good for your life in Christ. So wisdom for the trial. Faith that refuses to respond to the surging billows of doubt. That is part of what holding the faith has to deal with. You hold faith in Christ and you hold it with all sorts of leaky aspects to the vessel and doubt will creep in. And James says, don't doubt. Don't be double-minded. Don't ask God for wisdom and then also look for wisdom in all of the strategies that exist apart from God. And then finally, humility and contentment with God's dealings. This was what we talked about in, in the verses leading up to this. We're, we're really slow to speak and quick to listen, and we want to be doers of whatever God says. But let's not deceive ourselves and, just, and say, well, just because we're doing religious stuff, it means that we're doing God's religious stuff. That's why last week James says, really pure and undefiled religion has to do more with orphans and widows than what your religious activity allows for, and you're deceiving yourselves. In other words, be content in God's plan and don't tell him how to be God. That is the faith that James says now, Hold on to it. And what's going to happen when you leave this place is every one of these aspects of the summary of everything we've been talking about will be tried. And one of the ways it will be tried is when something walks through the doors of the assembly or your life that says, what about this? What if God could actually be helped along by some other method of provision or some other method of strategy for the blessing of your church or your gathering. So we're going to look at this in terms of the way your faith as you're called to hold on to it. This is a message for the believers. If you're not a believer this morning, I hope you listen and hear the way that we believe in God unto our joy as an invitation to join us. But there are three things that we read that we're going to cover this morning as we go through this. First, the thesis of the whole morning is to hold faith in Christ. In the circumstances of our world, of your specific life, and of all of the call that God has for you, the believer, cling to the faith. And the first aspect of what we read is that will be tested. There is a test to the faith. The second thing that James leads us in is he says there's also a choice. As any good test presents itself, now there's a decision that must be made in your choosing and how do we make that choice? And finally, something that we often don't talk about in the age of grace, in the gospel of grace, is that there is actually a grade. We read a verse today that said, you know, how you do this is either pass-fail. It's either you're doing it or you're a transgressor. So we're going to talk about 
how this plays out in our life. So we have a test, we have a choice, and we have a grade. A grade, and, and the test now brings us to the illustration. I, I say this is the test of the, the, the text this morning, and not simply the thesis, because holding the faith is now going to give us a picture of what this may or may not, not look like in our life. So let's reread this moment where James is going to give us an illustration to say, imagine in your desire to not be partial, to trust God and not trust other things, imagine it playing out in the assembly of church. So we read it. He says, consider this. You're being called to trust God, but into your assembly, a man with gold rings and fine apparel walks in. And there should come also a poor man in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, sit here in a good place. And to the poor man, you're like, sit over there or make a spot right here. I, I, the, the attention is really for the person that represents all sorts of provision, all sorts of material goods and wealth and a lavish lifestyle. And before we get to the, the judgment of that in, in our gathering, just consider the context in which we're reading. This is a, a church that was scattered abroad. And as we went through the initial, uh, the initial thrust of studying that, it was like, consider the circumstance. They're in a certain spot. They're persecuted because of their faith. They need to flee to new regions of the world for safety. They continue to trust God, but it's hard. And if you've ever moved from one region of the world to another, you know that that move comes with a lowering of the economic status. It's, it's like, I'll do anything to find work. I'm, I'm new to this area. I have left my, my economic relationship with my old place, and here I am just looking for work. And, and in many ways, that's the, the church that James is writing to. So sympathize with them for a second when all of a sudden they're gathering, they're, they're praying for wisdom, they're like, give us wisdom because we don't have joy and we need it. We're in trials and there's all sorts of temptation. And in comes the rich guy. And they're like, oh my gosh, maybe our prayers are being answered because this guy could solve a lot of problems. And the temptation potentially in all of the ways that they are trying to trust God is to say, okay, thank you, God. Now we can really trust this guy. If we get more guys like that, if there's more people that are rich, we'd have a better shot at actually caring for orphans and widows and actually, you know, getting our feet on the ground for the new places that we're in. And in their honoring of the rich person, they are now neglecting another person that walks in. And the person that walks in is, you, you saw a picture on the screen, it's like maybe homeless. It's like the clothes aren't great. What they have done, James will say, is that they've judged with evil thoughts. They've said, this is the way God can provide, and this guy's an afterthought. They've made room for earthly possessions to somehow be their hope, and they've neglected what God oftentimes chooses. And the lesson for the church age and for the way the gospel works and for the reflection of the image of God is that is not how God operates. God is not partial to what people bring to the table as how, how much he can use them or not. And so James rightly says, if you've done that, you've totally judged with evil thoughts because you're looking to them to somehow give to you. You're judging before you're loving. Jesus will, as James and Jesus often do, will, will support this message and, and, and come alongside our understanding of this. There was a moment in the Gospel of Luke 
where Jesus tells one of his famous parables. We actually call it the parable of the rich fool, where Jesus will warn against someone who looks to earthly possessions as the way that the, their, their life could be content and provided for. Before he tells the story, it's good to know why he told it. There was a man who came up to Jesus and said, hey, Will you tell your brother to split the, my brother to split the inheritance with me? We've got a dispute. Our, our father has died, and we can't figure out who gets the stuff. And as they always say, where there's a will, there's a relative, and that's what's happening here. To which Jesus says something that's very helpful for us. It's just why we can believe that this is not how God operates. It comes down to the essence of how he made us. Jesus says this, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. It is true for one's life. It is true for the life of a church. It's true for the liveliness in the Spirit of God, for the gathering of believers to worship God, never mind the possessions that exist in the assembly. Because the Spirit of God and the, the, the way that we come alive to worship Him is really the abundance of who we are. And the stuff, which we're grateful for, has no impact on whether or not we can truly love God and love one another. Uh, here's how Wesley says it. If you judge and you, and you think that the rich person is, is a better provision of God, you judge ill, or you reason ill and so judge wrong, for fine apparel is no proof of the worth in him that wears it. It's a John Wesley quote, so I tried to figure out what kind of shoes he would have been wearing. <laughs> he's an older, he's an older uh, a preacher. But the point is this. What I see right now tells me nothing about the state of your soul and nothing about the way that God wants to use you to be part of the assembly. And I love when the word gives a message to the church that the church can so easily give to the culture. Because we live in a time where I actually think as a church, we do this pretty well. I didn't plan on the opportunities that would be presented today before church, but it just so happened that we have an opportunity to give gifts to, uh, to poorer people across the world and to visit people who are homeless. And it seems as though there's a great excitement in this church about those things, so that's a good thing. This is not necessarily an admonishment. This is just us taking a pulse of what the Word is calling us to be and saying, okay, how are we doing at that? And I think one of the reasons that this text is so nourishing is that we, we live in a time where to not judge things on the outward appearance means you're going against the tide of the culture because we live in a culture that loves the outward appearance, that elevates people based off the way they look on the outside and the clothes that they wear and the lifestyle that they present. And the culture makes a lot of room for those at the top of the economic stratosphere and does not make a lot of room for those at the bottom. So as the church get this, gets this right, we actually increase our witness to what is actually valuable about a life. And it's important that we share this with the way that we live it out and also the way that we admonish one another on how to live and how to be lights in the dark. Because as much as the culture is, is, is buying into the lie that you can tell who to follow and who to listen to and who to admire based off clothes and lifestyle, they're being burdened by the, in, the inability to actually live it out. There's young people everywhere that don't feel sufficient because they think that life well lived is seen on a feed, and it's not. 
So we have to be refreshed by this message for the way that we gather, the way that we allow the gospel to, to, to make us impartial people towards one another, and the message that we bring to the world, that we are not trying to collect the rich people to provide for the church, and then all the things that we do are judged by how well those rich provisions do for us. So that's the practical application of the test, the illustration for the people that practically walk in. But I want to share the, the definition of the word partial to you because remember, this is just an illustration so that we can all get a test in our lives for how this faith lives in our heart. So listen to the definition of partial. It says this, favoring one side in a dispute above the other or being biased. James says, don't have a partial faith Here's one way you might see it play out if you do. But the core of the message is, do not put your trust in God with a biased view of how he should direct your life. Do not say, God, give me wisdom. And the wisdom I'm really looking for is wisdom how to do the thing that I have planned. I call that the Bible college prayer. How many of you have been to Bible college? And you have that moment when someone thinks they're called to marry another person, unbeknownst to the other person, and they start praying for the, the Lord's will to be done by opening their eyes and directing their class, uh, the, their class steps together. And if the person said no, it's like, change their mind, Lord. I just want your will to be done in a very specific way. This is an illustration of how the faith that we hold can be biased in just everyday life. We all have a preference for the life that we want to live. We have a desire that comes to the Lord that says, take my life, I'm yours, and, and I prefer it to be over here. I'm partial for things about my life. And there's a great danger in that. Uh, read Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Many of you hear Proverbs chapter 3 and you automatically think of the tattoo because there's a very common tattoo that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, verses five through six. Always read the verse after the tattoo. That's probably where the real crux of the message is. And for this, it says this, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. James is comparing this to evil in your life. We wish that evil lived in a much more compartmentalized sense, and that's why James will give them a, a lesson next week as we study it, that it's not enough to just not murder and not commit adultery. The Lord is judging you based off how much his life in you is actually everything about you. And we are so biased towards what we want. Here is a little axiom for you to remember this in your own life, in how we hold the faith. Hold the faith in our Lord. Listen to this. Trusting God means letting go of your default preferences. That's what it means to not be partial. Because every single one of you who have been saved came into the kingdom with all sorts of preferences that are being called to the cross. Jesus says, anyone who wants to be my disciple, pick up a cross and follow me. So the gospel is this. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but he did not die on the cross so you wouldn't have to die. He died on the cross to teach you how to die. 
and we all come and we say, okay, Lord, I accept the free gift of forgiveness of sins. I'm not sure, so sure about the cross. The cross is where you take your preferences that existed for the way you wanted your life to go and you lay them at the feet of the Lord. And you say, no longer my will. Whatever you have for me, in, in whatever, wherever, whenever, whatever, I am now being directed by you in a way that will no longer be biased. I will not tell you how to be my Lord. That's holding the faith without partiality. And if you're doing that, you're not going to tell God how he can love people through you. You're not going to choose the politics that you'll love and the, the neighborhoods that you'll love and the, the racial groups that you love and the ethics that you'll love. You say, God, I'm yours without bias. You, do, you can do whatever you want in me. So I use my own life as an example of that because I've been called to a cross. And for those of you who only know me through a pulpit or through a church, you'd think, this guy must just love being a pastor. He's up there every Sunday. You do what you love. And I do love it in my spirit. I love it in the same way for the joy set before the Lord, he endures the cross. But there is a flesh inside of me that identifies more with the rich man with, than with the pastor. There's a, there's a person that lives deep inside my soul that lives in the Caribbean and he works on a yacht and he has a scuba dive shop that he works on the weekends and he never does any ministry and he never shares the gospel. He lives for himself and he lives as though the rich man was walking through the doors and I see myself in the rich man. That's my flesh. That's what I want. I don't want to preach in my flesh, but I do when I'm picking up my cross and I'm following the Lord and I'm saying, without bias, God, without partiality, you get my whole life because you gave me yours. What does that look like in your life? What does it look like to trust, so God, trust in God so much that you lay down your default setting? This is what I was going to do. These are the people I like in my flesh. It's easy to like these people. James is saying, do not hold the faith with partiality. The test is in the people. But the core of your soul is how partial you are for the will of God for your own life. So now we come to the choice. Because James has made it clear there are two people. You neglected one to prefer the other. And now he's going to talk about the way God chooses, which is so differently than the way that we choose. So here comes the word choice in our scripture. Listen, verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? So if you want to follow Christ, you want the same spirit that was in Christ now in you, directing your life in a way that has laid your preferences down, you start to choose what God chooses. And James says, if the two people walk in, think about the model of God. This is not a message to make anyone feel burdened by the economic status that they have. This is a message to say the poor man was neglected. The rich man was treated great. It's great if you treat anyone the way that he was treated. Come sit down. The problem is that we neglect the things of God. We make room for some things that we like, and we don't make room for the things that God has made the most room for. God chose the poor. God chose those who would receive him as the Lord of glory, not as an option for the wisdom of their life. And aren't we glad 
this is the message, that God chooses the least likely, that we're not presenting God with our credentials this morning to worship him, to receive his word, to receive his spirit freely and to go live for him. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, and not many mighty, not many noble are called. Not many. Doesn't mean not any. It means that there is a model by which God surprises people by not choosing who man would elect. And to be honest, we all have these moments where we would elect way differently than God does for the offices of the church and ministry and missions and all the things that he does to push the gospel forward. Haven't we all sensed that, haven't we all felt that sense of assurance when we find out a certain celebrity is a believer? You're like, yes, we got him. That's awesome. I love Tim Tebow, and I do love Tim Tebow. I, I, I love this music artist, this celebrity. It's like, man, don't we all have someone in our mind? It's like, if they got saved, how many others would get saved? For me, that's Bob Marley. <laughs> I, I, I've spent way too long arguing with people over whether Bob Marley confessed Christ on his deathbed. And for me, I listen to those songs, and I'm like, I got to tell all my hippie friends that we got Bob Marley, and that they should get in so they can continue to have the joy of Bob Marley. It's like, that's not who God chose. Now, I don't know the status of Bob Marley's soul, but I know that if I give my hippie friends Bob Marley and not Christ, I'm failing them. And if we think that this world needs another celebrity to be convinced, we are failing the method that God works by. He does not work by elevating men. He works by elevating Christ. If you've been coming to our Wednesday service, we are actually, um, there's a thread that is existing now between uh, last Wednesday and this, because Tom Velasco, and if you haven't listened to the sermon, you certainly should, uh, he did a recap of how we got to the story of Jacob and uh, Leah. And it's like, okay, it's a weird story. But there's a, there's a summary that he gave us that was like, look at the way that God chooses so differently than we do. Because culture and world and uh, throughout time, inheritance and honor goes to the firstborn son. And time and time again, throughout scripture, God says, but that's not how I work. Uh, Ishmael's the firstborn and Ishmael came from a, 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 just a, a thriving young woman. But I choose Isaac, who came from a barren womb. And Esau's the strong firstborn. He's the, the, the man of might. But that's not who God chose. God chose the second born, the mild manner man. And on and on and on. He'll, the, as the nation of Israel will grow, he said, do you remember why I chose you? It's not because you were great in number. I liked how weak you were. So there'd be no confusion about who your God actually is. And as we enter into the season we're about to enter into, may we be reminded that this is the message of Christmas, that Jesus came in a manger and not a mansion. He came totally stripped of any reputation. And he says, follow me. In the continued of reading in 1 Corinthians, we get the answer as to the why and the choices of God. He says in verse 29, the base things in the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. You can't get away from the first verse of this chapter. 
It is the Lord of glory we trust. Gold rings and fine clothes and people of status have no glory compared to God. And God chooses people that will be vessels of his glory and not their own. And James will give us another why to the reason that we choose what God chooses in verses 6 and 7. Look what he says. But you've dishonored the poor man. You judged evilly and you dishonored the poor man. And what happens? Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? For they blaspheme the noble name by which you are called. It's, it's tempting to think of God's choice as something that is an option or something that is so scary it could never be ventured into your faith. But the reminder that we read this morning is that when we choose with our evil thoughts and when we play the judge, we choose all sorts of wrong. And James is very practically speaking to the illustration. You prefer rich people, but in the grand scope of the economic classes, aren't the rich people that, aren't they the ones that abuse you? Aren't they the ones that drag you to court and oppress you? Again, this is not a broad stroke against economic status. We're a rich church. But in the course of history, you see that those who have more wealth, have more power, and have more uh, opportunity to oppress others. And James is like, he chose them. And they blaspheme the name of the God who came to you in a manger. You choose poorly. Uh, a reminder given to 1 Timothy of the danger of choosing the wrong treasure. 1 Timothy chapter 6, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. A reminder to all of us that living for God Choosing what God chooses will cost you. There's a cross involved. There's a laying down of your preferences involved. But the reality is, is not choosing God's will for your life will cost you way worse. Choosing the treasures of this world that grow wings and fly away, that cause you all sorts of burden and anxiety that God never called you to. As they say, more money, more problems. At least one person said that. Um, as, we, as we go through the book of James, last week we did a, a movie reference. So uh, round two of James at the movies, another great movie of, of, of my childhood. Uh, and the perfect illustration for this, because there is a choice that you make that goes so much farther than the people that you may or may not love. When you are partial towards the will of God in your life, where you'll say yes to some things and no to others, depending on what you want, you have chosen something that will destroy you. And the movie I'm about to reference is uh, an all-time classic. One of my favorites is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, so, some real theological overlays here, so never mind the unholiness and focus on the lesson here because the whole movie is about this legend that the cup with which Jesus administered the Passover meal was still somewhere hidden in earth. And if one were to find it, they could drink of the water from that cup and it would bring them life. So the, the whole movie is two sides, evil and good, looking for the source of life given in this cup. And at the end of the movie, Indiana Jones and his greatest rival, they both make it through all the layers of, of traps and, and treasure maps, and they get in, and they, they meet the knight that for hundreds of years has been protecting this grail. 
which sets up the most classic scene in the movie, and a, and a moment for us to say, what does that look like in your life? So they meet the, the Grail Knight, and he says this. As there's a fountain of water with cups all around the fountain, the Grail Knight says, it's time for you to choose. But choose wisely, as the true Grail will bring you life, the false Grail will take it from you. Sound familiar? There is a test of your faith, and there will be a choice that comes with that test. And that choice will bring you life. I will impartially follow God no matter where he calls me to, or it will take life from you. I will be deceived by my own evil judgments and my plans for my life. And so a picture of us choosing poorly is the rival of Indiana Jones, Walter Donovan. He comes up first, and he's, he's, he's looking for what we look for. What cup would be worthy of life everlasting? And what does he say? This one. It's more beautiful than I ever imagined. This must be the cup of the King of Kings. He found in all of the display that was available to him, he found the most beautiful cup to hold the water in. He found something that was beautiful on the outside, more beautiful than I imagined on the outside, studded with rubies and diamonds, gold exterior. It says, this must be the cup of the King of Kings. And what happens? It says, he chose Poorly. And if you've seen the movie, there's like this 1989 CGI graphics and he withers away into nothing and he falls into the water and he turns into dust. And so it is for those of us who look for life given from God, for God's glory, in all of the ways that beauty on the outside entices us in. It's not about the beauty of the vessel. It's about the power of the vessel to, to hold the waters of life. And that's why my man, who I call Indy, because <laughs> I know him like that. <laughs> he finds the plainest, most humble, most broken, and yet still can hold water cup that you can find. And he says, this is the cup of a carpenter. It's the cup of the king who came as a bondservant. It's the cup of the king whose vocation was carpentry. And so it is with your life. You are a cup of the king. And the outside of the cup does not matter. It doesn't matter what I see exteriorly about your life and your possessions and your resources and your clothes. What matters is what fountain of life you hold. Corinthians will go on to say, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God chooses all sorts of cups and all sorts of varieties, but the power is God himself and not the cup. And we get this wrong all sorts of ways. So here's another little reminder and axiom to hold us closer to this truth. Hold the faith of our Lord. How? Consider the less likely choice. As you cling to your faith in God and it is tested with choices, there will be obvious choices presented to you by this world. They look the most appealing. They have the most economic opportunity. They look the most beautiful. And the exterior is how you may judge them. And yet we believe in a God who is always surprising us with what he chooses. The less likely the, the less beauty on the inside, 
the humble and the righteous and the pure from the inside out. Not the whitewashed. Not the dish that is clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. And so here are some things for us to consider in our lives as we look for the less likely option. One of these will come to us in an example given to us in the Old Testament of this storyline that comes throughout the Bible of God choosing differently than man. And I find it helpful because oftentimes we get this message wrong, not just with who comes through the doors of the assembly, but who stands on the stage of the assembly. And we look for the most shiny vessel of the message of God on the exterior. And that was a problem that has existed throughout time with the people of God. Uh, there was a time where the, the Lord uh, led his people through judges, and they looked at other nations, and they said, we want a king. All the other nations have a king. Give us a king. Now, their, their folly was that God was the king. But they wanted a, a representation of the throne of God in an earthly vessel. And so who did they choose? The tallest and the strongest and the best looking. They chose Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have the end of Saul's grace and favor with God. Essentially, Saul makes enough mistakes to where God says, I'm done with him as king. There's going to be a new king. And he raises up a, uh, one of his prophets to anoint the new king. Saul was the people's choice. Saul looked the part. Samuel's going to find God's choice. But before he does, he needs autocorrect. Once again, look what it says in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7. Samuel comes into the household of Jesse. So it was when they came that Samuel looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Just look at him. He's the oldest. He's strong. He's got the right parameters to be the leader. It's like, Samuel, we just made that mistake. We just chose the king based off appearance and stature, to which God will say, in verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We will go against the tide of the world culture and we will go against the tide of religious culture because religious culture, including Christian culture, loves the Saul. We love the fancy preachers. We love the stylish worship leaders. We love the message that comes out with ruby-studded diamonds. But God says, that's not the leader I'm looking for. I'm looking for the leader that has a heart that's after my heart. And may we be a witness to the world by presenting in our own following, those who follow Christ, pastors and leaders and those we listen to for counsel, not based off the exterior successes of their life, but finding people that represent the heart of God in our life. Wisdom, truth, bold courage to, to lead and to lay down your life, to, to walk in humility with all glory pointing to God. And so I I. I pray, I hope, I admonish us as a church to look for God's glory in whatever vessel he uses and to not be deceived by the stuff of the leader. Here's another way we choose wisely. Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Now you take it from the way we look to leaders to just the way that we look for relationships. First service, we were full of college students. I encourage them to, to, to pay attention to their physical attractions. Nothing wrong with that. 
But in the scale of the way that we look to respect people, this stuff is fading away. If, if we're looking to follow or to, to make relationships or to form friend groups around the cool and the stylish and the beauty and the charming, we have misprioritized what actually matters because the Proverbs say that it is the one that fears the Lord that should be praised. That's the virtue we're looking for in the people that we relationship with, that we form bonds with, that we ultimately commit to in relationships. The primary is do they love God? Because if we marry each other and, and, and hang out with each other and, and form friend groups around each other because of the exterior stuff. We're going to be really disappointed really quickly because it's all fading away. I'm so grateful that my wife trusts that I love God and, and doesn't look to my exterior because she's day by day getting more disappointed. <laughs> Here's another way that we can choose to look for the less likely choice. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 11, the choice of the wicked, the house of the wicked will be overthrown, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right in your own wisdom to a man, but the end is the way of death. Did you see the two economic options? There's a house and there's a tent. The proverb says, listen, you can have a house, you can live in the suburban dream house, you can have the cars in the garage, you can have the American dream, and if it's not filled with a love for God, the spirit indwelling, making it come alive, its wickedness will not be worth it. And don't we know it? How many people are living out the American dream rat race to pay the mortgage and to pay the car payments and to keep the lawn green, and you have no time to love God and love people? The less likely choice is to choose a life unto God's, to God's honor and glory that may be more humble. It may be more simple. It may look more like a tent than a house, although not many of you here have tents. But the, the contrast is clear. God prefers us to live so simply before him that we can love him and worship him, and we'll exchange the tent for a house someday says that we live in a temporary body, and this is not the final dwelling. And so it is, and everything that you lay your head down and rest is all temporary. May you have a blessed life unto the honor of God in the rhythms of God's call to your life and stop worrying about the extra stuff. That's the less likely choice in this culture. Here's one way it's been put. It says, I'm happy to give my life to God as long as I get to pick my life. Here you go, God. <laughs> Take it all. I'm going to keep the nice big house and the nice big truck, and, and then, then no way to, to, is this at all a, 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 a burdensome message for our homes and cars. This is to say, when James says, don't be partial, he says, about anything. Whatever. Whenever. Wherever. Wherever you call me. So now we get to the grade. James will basically give us the measurement of all of this. Pointing to any worth that exists as we leave this place. Because although God came and gave us a, a totally new orientation to the law, he still has a law, a commandment, a, a final way to judge the success and the worth of our life. 
It says in James chapter 2, verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you, yourself, and you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. That's it. There's no grading on a curve. It's not like, well, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really loving God in, in all of these compartmentalized ways, and, and when I meet him face-to-face, I'll present the good stuff, and we'll just never mind the bad stuff, which that's grace. It's covered. But what James is saying is that if you're really holding the faith, you fulfill the law, the royal law of love. And what is it? You love God so impartially. You give your whole life to God so impartially that you now love everyone else. That's it. That's the fulfillment. There's another version of the quote I just shared. It says this, I'm happy to love my neighbor as long as I can pick my neighborhood. It's like, okay, Lord, I got these boundaries around. It's like, give God Sunday and Wednesday and the boundaries of our life. And he says, here's the grade. Do you love God? I can tell by the way you love people. I shared that quote with our community's pastor, who's happy to enhance it for the purposes of our church. And he's like, that's exactly why I encourage everyone to join the community that God gives them. To not build communities around common interests or favorite sports team or, or one specific you know, style of friendship. Gather with people, young and old, that God has surrounded you with. And so he shared with me his own version of that quote. It says, lack of partiality is confirmed by who is in your proximity and your community. You want to see how much you love God? Who do you let in? Who will you let into your life? Who, who will you look at as they walk through the door? Do you make room for whoever God sends you? Or do you fulfill the law according to your preferences and your biases and your prejudices and all of your partiality? That's the test. There's a story that gives us a little bit of that why again. Why is it that God can give us such a clear way to to see the law fulfilled in our life and hope that it's something that's possible? Because if you've noticed, human nature goes the other direction. Human nature likes to hang out with people you like and kind of avoid the people you don't and kind of hang out with your, your, your economic circle and hang out with your tribe and the people you agree with. That seems to be the world presenting its playbook. And yet we're called to something else. So how do we get there? Well, I find stories helpful. There's a story in Luke chapter 7 of a woman who seems to be displaying this in a way that all of us should be inspired by. In fact, the story kind of starts in a similar way as James presents the options. There's people walking through the door. How do you treat them? And Jesus himself walks through doors in his earthly ministry. It makes you wonder, what would happen if Jesus walked through our doors? Walk through your doors. In one specific way, Luke 7, he, he walks into the doors of a Pharisee, a religious person, the, the rich of his day. And here's what happens. A woman comes as Jesus is sitting and gives him the most impartial, un, unbiased display of love that many of these people had ever seen. And they question what happened. And so Jesus explains it. He says, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. 
but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. He then goes on to give us the whole, the, the, the source of the power behind this whole message. Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. There's the grave. When we look at people as other people's problems, when we are partial for the will of God based off what we want, when we are less than loving because we haven't fully allowed God's love to pour out of us, there's a simple problem that's happening. We have yet to allow the love of God to penetrate the depths of our own life. This woman knew how much she needed God's love and her display of love was clearly given. You want to love other people? How much has God loved you? Do you come here this morning and was like, yeah, I've, I'm partial to all of these things in my life and I've got all of these ways that I want my religion to look because I'm not that bad. I actually make pretty good judgments. I actually have pretty good plans. I've actually done pretty well so far. I, I, I kind of preference the rich because I'd look down on the poor. Or do you come here so broken for the reality that God loves you, yes, you? How did I even get here? Why am I standing here sharing the gospel? Why am I here worshiping freely to a God that is so holy that he brings me to my knees? You have that encounter with that living God, you experience the fullness of his forgiveness, and there's nobody that's off limits. I'll share one last story because I love when I get to see this played out in our own church. Um, one of the reasons I think that we do this okay is because of the people that we have welcoming in our church. So thank you for all of those who do that impartially and unbiased and grateful for anyone that God sends into these doors. And, and one person maybe you guys have seen over the years is, is, uh, is one of our main groundkeeper guys, Michael. How many of you have met Michael? Man, he is... He, he's, he's a greeter of all people. I don't care who you are. I don't need to know anything about you. Michael will set up a chair. He will leave out coffee. He will do anything for anybody. And I've always loved his heart for that. And the, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had our conference, a conversation for the LGBTQ community. Are we impartial? Are we listening to how God wants us to love them? Are we making room? And so Michael and I sat next to each other that night, and we're, we're driving uh, over to his house to hang out afterwards. I said, what do you think? And he shared with me a statement of his whole philosophy of life. He said, if God can love me, I can love anybody. It, it helps to know Michael's story. He's been through a lot. He's, he's someone that the Lord has cleansed from so much stuff. His life was given over to drugs and parties and money, and he, he's been through all of it, and he had an encounter with God that was so real that he said, whatever, whoever, whenever. And that's how he's somebody in the economy of God that is honored amongst the greats. Because he doesn't need to be on stage. He doesn't need you to know him. He doesn't need to ever get any recognition. He loves God so he can love anybody because those who have been forgiven of much, forgive much. You want to see a church that's impartial? 
you'll see a church that's broken, a church that's gone through repentance, a church that has, has been gone through tears of forgiveness, reconciliation. You find that church, and you find a church where there are all sorts of economic statuses, all sorts of people, and there's no bias towards anybody. It all starts with the way that we receive. Are you that person? Does God love you to the depths of your sin, to the depths of all of your broken plans and evil judgments and need for a savior? And if you are, you can love anybody. And so that's what we'll end with as we consider this last moment to say, God, reach into my heart in that way so that where I go, there's nothing that this world could throw on me that I'd let go of my faith in you. Because the test is coming. The world's going to say, try this. Check out this plan for your life or this plan for provision. Try, try the, the first choice, not the unlikely choice. But if we are people who want to honor God in our generation, we love him, whatever, whenever, wherever. If you've never known that relationship with God, the joy that comes from his life and life more abundant, freely given, you're here to hear that message. God loves you impartially. He loves you without reproach, meaning he doesn't judge the, all the stuff that you did apart from him. He, he, he wants to put it on the cross of his son pay for the penalty, forgive you, and welcome you in as a son and a daughter. You are the rich person today. And so we'll hope that you would confess with your mouth that the Lord would be your Savior and that you would take part in this movement of the, the radical love of God that we hope would define our church. If that is you, we'd love to talk to you and, and baptism waters await. If you already believe, may we be refreshed. God loves us, even us, Boise, Idaho. What the heck? And all of our waywardness and ups and downs and, and church chaos and, and, and culture collision. And God loves us, and he's forgiven us of so much. He makes us clean. And now we say, who do you want us to love, God? Wherever, whatever, whenever.